God? No. Do you have any reasons that you think of to be skeptical about the existence of God? Pretty much just like everything that you see going on around here. Like all everyone who's homeless, everyone who's dying. The Bible was written what? 400 years after the events took place. I mean, if somebody tells you a story and then tells you the same story two weeks, generally things change and then we're gonna be going over a four century period. It's really hard to get things accurate. It's just something that makes people feel better about their existence. There's no magical thing in the sky because scientists um, like did studies. It's not real. It's just a lack of proof. Religion is a great concept. Nobody really has it uh, as a truth or a fact. You'll never be able to prove it, and that's the problem with religion. It's kind of difficult to, you know, ignore the inevitable and what's really existent for us, which is death, and we have no idea what's after it. We need to believe in each other before we believe in other things. What, what, has, what has God done for anyone? God. <laughs> you can't see that, but there's air quotes there. <laughs> I don't know. I just find that maybe if there was a God, people would be better off and we'd all learn to understand each other a bit more, but we don't. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made the world by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom. He stretched out the heavens by his understanding. The belief that God miraculously created everything that we see is a core value for Christianity. It is. And yet, none of us in this room were there to witness it, right? <laughs> I mean, can you go back in time and verify with, I mean, I mean, irrefutable proof that God actually made the world? None of us can, except the miraculous, the supernatural is central to Christianity. And not just that God made the world, but that he actually sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, die on our behalf, and then was raised again. That miraculous, that supernatural is central to Christianity. One first eyewitness of Jesus actually said, without the resurrection, our faith is pointless. It's pointless. Now, the crazy thing is that our culture right now has trained us to be skeptical towards anything miraculous or anything supernatural, right? I mean, whenever someone tells you something wild, a wild story, your first gut, my first gut reaction is, nah, that's not true, or we explain it away one way or another, you know? I mean, if, if someone says, hey, my cat disappeared, and then all of a sudden, poof, it fell out of the sky and then dropped onto my porch, like all of us would be like, yeah, it didn't happen that way. Like that didn't happen because we're trained to believe that su supernatural things, miraculous things just don't happen. Uh, C.S. Lewis recorded a conversation that he had with somebody at one point uh, in which he, he, he remembered his friend saying this, and this kind of sums it up, kind of the attitude that is in, in our uh, culture right now. Miracles, his friend said. Oh, come. Science has knocked the bottom out of that. We know that nature is governed by fixed laws. Fixed laws. Meaning that nature around us has certain sets of guiding principles and laws that just don't change. They are the same today and tomorrow. They don't, they don't change like gravity, you know. Gravity doesn't change. No matter how much you want to fly and take off, and some of us do. You know, I know maybe some kids, like some dudes, you grew up and like you put your, like a cape on and you were on the, the, the top of your roof and you're just like ready to, to Peter Pan the whole thing. Not going to work out so well because gravity doesn't change. 
Nature has fixed laws. And the reality is like when we think about those fixed laws, we say like those laws only work when nothing actually comes in and interferes with that. And so what people have concluded is that there is nothing supernatural. Nature is governed by its own laws. So why would we believe in the supernatural? And if we can't believe in the supernatural, then it's impossible to believe in God. As Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher uh, in the 1800s, summed up the attitude of the Enlightenment and humanism and all that, he said, God is dead and we have killed him. Now, look, for those of you who maybe this is your first time, my name is Scott Kearney. I'm the lead pastor here at The Well. We don't believe this. We believe that there is a God. We believe that he created everything uh, that uh, exists. He created you. He created me. And there's purpose behind all of that. And yet this is the prevailing attitude, isn't it? I mean, when we think about our school experience, you know, or even just work experience, we've probably heard from a lot of people saying, you know, hey, faith is fine for you, but that's just not me. I believe in science. Anybody ever heard that? You know, you believe in religion, that's fine, but I believe in science. It's such an interesting thing. The attitude is that Christianity or faith is a bit of a crutch. That's for those who just want to believe emotionally in certain things. It's, it's irrational, but I, I like facts, you know. I like the evidence, and so I'm going to believe in science. You know, you could almost pit visually the two different sides there conversing with each other. When we even think about them dialoguing together, the image that we get is of like a Harvard professor, you know, with this like brilliant suit and all that, interacting with like kooky Aunt Mabel from Backwoods, Tennessee, you know. He's <laughs> like, well, you just got to believe, you know. Man, we even heard that from Mark up here talking about that. That's the image that we get when it comes to faith and science and all that interacting with each other. Is that true? Famous, uh, popular atheist Richard Dawkins puts it this way. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence for ourselves. And his fellow atheist friend Sam Harris said, atheism is not a philosophy nor a view of the world. It's just simply an admission of the obvious. So the question for us in this whole series, the problem of God, is really what evidence is there? Has science today, has science disproved the existence of God or is there actual evidence that points us and leads us to think that God actually is the most logical conclusion? So before we dig into the evidence today, and, here's, and we are going to do that, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a different series. You know, for those of you who are uh, family members here at the well, usually we will just open up a passage from the Bible because we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And we're going to hear a number of passages today that will connect us back to the bigger picture itself. But instead of just working through a particular passage, we're going to set the foundation for the existence of God to begin with. And if God is real, then it's very possible supernaturally that he has also chosen to speak to us through his word. But we're going to talk about that. But before we get into the evidence, we're going to look at three different areas of science. And I am by no means a scientist, okay? I'm not a scientist. I am an amateur at best. But this is the road that uh, I have been on in my personal exploration of this. We're going to look at cosmology. We're going to look at anthology. Cosmology is the beginning of the universe. How did the cosmos come to begin? Uh, anthology is how did life exist? How do the conditions around in the universe actually make it possible for life to exist? And then we're going to look at biology. Uh, how does life actually mutate and grow and get to the place where it is what it is today? Okay, so you guys with me? We're going to have some fun with this. Um, but before we do that, we have to understand... Uh, number one, why are we doing this series? And then two, what is science? So why are we doing this? Three reasons. What I want to do in this whole series, today and the next 
four weeks. I want to be able to level the playing field between believers and skeptics to look at the evidence for themselves. Maybe you grew up in an environment where you were just taught, you know, hey, just believe this. Just believe it and stop, stop doubting. Doubting's, doubting's the enemy. Just believe it. Don't look at the evidence, you know. Science is the enemy. Faith is, you know, right. Just believe it. Well, that doesn't do you any good when you come against some pretty well-thought-out arguments, does it? And maybe for some of you, it hasn't added a depth to your faith that you need. Because as you'll find from my journey, the deeper I've explored the evidence, the deeper my faith has actually grown. And then for those maybe who are, are skeptics, you know, maybe, maybe you've bought into certain arguments that you actually have not really, maybe you haven't explored deep enough. Have you examined your own worldview? So we want to level the playing field there uh, and, and get us back to the place where we understand uh, the importance and the critical importance of examining the evidence for ourselves. Uh, but I also want to help our church family reason out their faith. One of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus was not anti-evidence. He was actually deeply for evidence. And he said, look, uh, we have to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Be prepared. Be, be, always be prepared to give a hope for the reason that lies within you. So uh, this is Peter. And, uh, you know, but do it with gentleness and respect. I love that. And here's where it can so often become an argument and like someone's got to win, someone's going to lose. That's not what it's about here. And you'll hear a little bit more about how we dialogue respectfully in a little while. But uh, the last one is, just, just hang with me on this one. As we explore this evidence, if God exists, let's consider the implications. What does that mean for us? What does that mean as we journey to understand who God is and maybe start learning to interact with him in a personal way? Okay. So, step one. We've got to explore what is science and what is it equipped to do and what is it not equipped to do, okay? So here's what I want to propose to begin with. Science is a methodology. It should not be a worldview. It is a field of study. It is a methodology. It should not be considered an entire worldview. Here's how it works. The scientific method, you guys know what the scientific method is. If you've been through school, it's, you know, you observe the world, you, you make some, some questions, and you ask a lot of questions about it, you hypothesize what could possibly be, and then you analyze and evaluate the, de the evidence, and then you come to some conclusions. That's the methodology to it. And we come to some great conclusions with that methodology. But as a methodology, it has to assume something. This is what uh, one pastor said. The scientist must always assume that there is a natural cause. It's the only way it works. That is because natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven there can't be any other kind. In other words... In order to understand something scientifically, you've got to assume certain limitations that only what is natural can be studied here. Otherwise, it can't even work as a methodology. Stephen Jay Gould, he's an atheist, uh, one of the leading evolutionary bio biologists and paleontologists in the past hundred years. He admits this, ready? Nature just is. In all her complexity and diversity, in all her sublime indifference to our desires, therefore we cannot use nature, check this out, you can't use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. It's not equipped to do that. To say it for my colleagues and for the umpteenth million times, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. This is an atheist talking here. 
We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. It's a methodology, and so science is limited. Uh, it, it's like trying to find, to, to, to use science to, to prove whether God exists or not is like looking within Romeo and Juliet and trying to prove that Shakespeare existed or didn't exist. To look in the play itself and only within the play, within those boundaries, you can't actually prove or disprove whether Shakespeare existed. You have to use a completely different field of study, namely history. You can't use science for that. So it is a methodology. So the interesting thing is, if it's just a methodology, why have people been so adamant to use science to say that God cannot exist? The interesting thing is that people have come to that conclusion well before they actually sat down and started looking at science. It was a prior commitment. Check this out. Uh, Richard Lewinton, an evolutionary bio biologist, uh, he once wrote in the New York Book Review uh, just a really honest admission. He admits that he and his colleagues have a prior commitment to materialism, meaning that the world is all that there is. He said it's not that the methods and institutions of science compel us somehow to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes, meaning that that's what he came to the table with. He had a prior bias, and that's what he came to the table with. He said, that's, that's what I am committed to even before. And he concludes, we just can't allow a, a divine foot in the door. Because he doesn't like the implications. It's a so the interesting thing is that you've got some people who admit that science is a methodology and other people who try to make it into a philosophical worldview. But the interesting thing that, is that the two are extremely different. Very different. When you make science into a philosophical worldview, you bring it into the realm of faith. Because that philosophical worldview is actually as, just as unprovable as any other faith is. It is a philosophical commitment that drives people to say God does not exist. Philosopher Nicholas Wolterstoff concluded the faith at which the positivist dis display in natural science was not arrived at scientifically. They didn't use the scientific method to disprove God. So here's another illustration to kind of figure out how this works. So when you, when you think about science as a methodology, uh, again, it assumes certain things that left by itself, nature just left by itself, this is how it works, okay? So again, C.S. Lewis gave me this image and I thought it was super helpful. He said, let's just assume that you've got a methodology for saving some money away. You got this box and every day you put $5 into the box, and if nothing interferes with it, at the end of a week, how much should you have? $35. No mathematicians in the room today, okay? You guys are brilliant. All right, we'll work on math next week. Uh, look, when you put $5 into a box every day for a week and nobody touches it, you're going to have $35 at the end of the week. That's how the scientific method works. But it cannot tell you if anybody's going to interfere with it. Let's just say I set the box up there and I'm putting dollars into it and then, you know, I go get the disguise, the villain mask, you know, and all that and like, you know, I sneak up to the stage. Ha ha! You know, and I take a whole bunch of money away. Like at the end of the week, that method doesn't work because something interfered with it, right? You can't use the method to tell whether someone's going to interfere with it or not. And that's basically what a lot of people have tried to do with science. We're going to use this method to disprove the fact that a supernatural being can actually interact with this world. But it's a philosophical commitment. Here's the crazy thing. Every one of us in this room have faith commitments that are not just based on evidence, 
but based on a number of things. We come to our faith positions, whether you are an atheist or whether you're a Christian, every one of us, we've got faith positions that are not provable. We come to it through experience and not just evidence. We come to it through faith and not just evidence. You know, we, we, we come to it with reasoning, but also with intuition. There's a number of factors that lead us to believe the things that we believe. It's not just the facts, although facts help. So anyway, that's step number one. And we can, look, if you disagree with me on that one, please talk to me afterwards because I'd love to have a conversation with you about this. But we have to understand that as a methodology, people have blown it up to be something that it is not equipped to do. Okay, so you ready to get into little pieces of evidence? Cosmology, here's where we're going to begin. Cosmology is the beginning of the world and how the universe came to be. Now the popular thought is that, and this is taught in science books and, and all around, is that the Big Bang is what is responsible for the world's beginning. Boom, it all exploded all at once and then, you know, planets and everything soared into existence and this is the So uh, Stephen Hawking, again, brilliant minds, um, passed away this past year, which is kind of a blow to the science world. Um, he said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So the wild thing is, like, this is just widely accepted in the science community right now um, and has been for quite a while. Um, and what, what they look to is actually the evidence that comes from Edwin Hubble's telescope. Edwin Hubble at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Southern California in 1929 showed that dozens of galaxies were actually racing away from this Earth's galaxy at high speeds as though they came from some sort of a cosmic explosion. He was also looking at the levels of helium in the universe and hydrogen. Helium, the amount of helium in the, in the universe uh, is such that it, it, it gives evidence that there must have been some sort of a massive explosion at some point. And the hydrogen, the different capacities of hydrogen in the, the atmosphere, uh, when, you, when you look at close range to long range, indicates that it all actually came from one particular place and was racing away from us at extremely high speeds. Now, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of people conclude that the Big Bang itself is evidence that God couldn't exist. You know, they're like, well, if, if we see all of that evidence, clearly God is not the author of all this. The Big Bang is. Here's the big question for all of us. What started the Big Bang? And when you think about science, everything must have a cause, right? You can't have something come from nothing. So what started the first thing in motion? So here's the really interesting thing. Some of you may know this already, but one of the most fascinating things is that when Einstein first proposed his theory of relativity, uh, he made his calculations, and then at the end of the calculations, he assumed that the, that the universe was eternal, that it had always existed for a long, long, long period of time. It just always, 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 and if the universe was existing forever, then you wouldn't need a God, except the fact that a Russian mathematician actually re-looked at his equations and said that you actually came to the wrong conclusion when you divided by zero. He said your math was off. And, and, and as soon as he recovered the math on that, it actually showed that history actually had a point in time where it began. 
Now, the really interesting thing is that um, another guy by the name of George uh, Lemaitre proposed against popular thought, again, that the universe had a definite beginning point. It was not eternal. He, he said that when you look at the evidence of what Edwin Hubble gave us, it says that, that at some point something exploded and expanded from a small, hot, dense state in a primeval superatom, and this boom, it all exploded into one place at one particular time. It's not eternal. It had a beginning. Now, the scientific community at the time in the 1920s really rebelled against this because of its religious implications. The Big Bang actually was not evidence against God back in the 1920s. It was evidence for God, and a lot of people hated it. In fact, there was one German chemist, he said, he said to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the foundations of science. He said, we don't like this because of where it leads us. In fact, uh, Einstein at first rebelled against what people were proposing, that the universe was not eternal, but actually definite, had a beginning point. He said it reeked of re religion, uh, and it was abominable, until he looked at the evidence that Edwin Hubble himself had, and, and then found out that uh, George Lemaitre was not just a scientist, he was actually orda an ordained priest. That the origins of the Big Bang Theory actually were not against God and atheistic. They were actually deeply religiously rooted. And then when, when Einstein actually looked at the evidence, he, and, and he had these conversations with George Lemaitre, he actually, this is what he said. This is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation to which I have ever listened. <laughs> It's so interesting to me because sometimes we, we like to assume that certain scientific things disprove the existence of God. But I love the sarcasm that God uses to one of the earliest characters in the Bible named Job. Where he asks him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? The reality is that like the, the universe is not infinite. It had a beginning point and God was the one who started it. Because if all matter had a beginning point then the thing that started it must have been bigger than matter. It must have been a mind. Follow the logic there. If matter had a beginning, then something before matter must have existed and it must have been a mind. And that's where God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? He was the first cause, the uncaused agent. And in John 5, 26, Jesus said, the father has life in himself. He always, he's the author of life. And so everything that lives had a first cause. To believe that something came from nothing actually takes more faith than to believe that something came from a first cause who has always existed forever. And in Acts 17, Paul said, he himself gives life to everyone and breath to everyone and everything else. Francis Collins, the award-winning scientist who mapped out the human genome, if you think you're smart, just read what he's got. He mapped out the human genome, like the DNA strands, okay? He mapped it all out. He said... The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. He says, I cannot, I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. The interesting thing is that scientists still, after all that evidence, they don't want to believe this. Again, by a prior philosophical commitment, they, they rebel against it. And so we've actually heard some atheists propose, well, it wasn't God who started the Big Bang. It was actually some sort of an alien civilization that existed, you know, millions of galaxies away. And I'm like, okay, let's just believe that for a second, even though there's zero evidence for it. Um, who started that alien civilization? 
Well, you know, there's probably another alien civilization. Okay, how far back does that go? And you see, you get to this infinite regression where something has to exist for all eternity. And not just exist for all eternity and create what we see, but to create intelligent life. Man, you and I, like we've got brains and hearts and emotions. Doesn't it make more sense that a mind and a heart was the one who started everything in motion to begin with? Where does the evidence lead us? Stephen Hawking even at one point admitted, even though he, he ended his life as an atheist, he said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. Is it possible that the origins of the universe actually point to God instead of away from him? All right, that's cosmology. How about anthology? Uh, can you throw that picture up there, Grace? Anybody know what this is? Yeah, Mount Rushmore. All right, so journey with me for a second, okay? Put on your, like, your pilgrim hats, all right? You're journeying with me into the Wild West, and you're assuming that no human being has ever touched this land ever before, and you somehow stumble across these beautiful rocks. And just looking at that, you say, wow, accidental forces and chaos are so awesome, aren't they? Look at, look at what nature did. Now, in a trillion, trillion, trillion years, would you ever guess that accidental collision, chaotic forces were the, uh, were the cause, the first cause of creating the first, like some of the four presidents of the United States that made the biggest difference? Like, would you ever assume that? You'd be like, you're out of your mind. It took someone intelligent to craft all of that. You can put the next picture up there. And that's exactly what happens, you know? Look, it took a lot of excavation and hand carving and all that to actually make those sculptures look the way that they did. And so we assume that it can't be accidental causes. It has to be some sort of an intelligent being to create all of that. Now, here's the interesting thing. We assume that it was accidental causes that gave rise to the conditions that are possible for life to exist. But is that the most logical explanation for what we actually have? And here's where anthology comes in. How did the universe not only create the right conditions so that life could exist, but intelligent human life? So if we can't assume that about Mount Rushmore, and you think about the odds of Mount Rushmore looking the way it is just based on chaos, check out these odds. So a lot of people would say that we're just lucky. The earth is lucky the way it is, the way it's positioned. It's just lucky that we happen to have life the way that we have it. But, I mean, just follow me. If you're a mathematician, this might blow your mind. The probability of the world, planet earth, having the right conditions to have life happen, and not just life, but intelligent life, is one in one-tenth to the 138 power. To put that in perspective... It's estimated that the number of atoms in the universe is 1 in 10 to the 70th. That's half the probability that life is possible here in, in the world. Meaning that the probability of life happening so that you and I could actually sit in these seats if it was accidental causes is on a razor's edge. That's how fragile it is. It's actually like, I heard someone say, it's like throwing a dart in space and expecting it to land on the bullseye of an atom. That's how odd 
the, uh, that, that's how crazy the odds are that we would actually even exist if it wasn't for an intelligent being. Stephen Hawking said, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. Isn't that nuts? That even if it was one second off just a little bit, boom, it, we, we'd never have existed by a 100,000 million million. He said, on the other hand, if the expansion rate at one second had been larger by the same amount, the universe would have expanded so much that it would be effectively empty by now. Meaning it's not supposed to happen. If accidental causes were the cause for all of us, we should not be here right now. To continue on that, if the strength of gravity were charged by one part in, in 10,000 billion, 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 life could not exist. So if gravity was off by just a tiny, 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 tiny fraction, we would not be here. If the moon was not the right size and distance from the earth, we wouldn't have the gravitational pull to keep our planet rotating the way that it is around the sun, to have the perfect distance between us and the sun and the size of the sun for life to exist. In fact, there's 122 different critical variables that all have to be in, in the same place at the same time, all happening at once, even for life to even have a possibility. You tell me whether it takes more faith to believe that accident created the universe or an intelligent being. Now, here's the crazy thing for us. Sometimes it feels like life is owned by chaos. Am I right? <laughs> Look, you don't have to tell me. We just went through a month of sickness in my house with three kids. And I'm telling you, sometimes chaos just rules the day. Sometimes, like, man, you walk into your workplace and you just feel like chaos is ruling. It's not, it's not a design. And, and you think, man, look, where is my life going? And it feels like chaos is at the root of all of that. But I'm telling you right now, the fact that life should never have happened leads me to the conclusion that not only are you not an accident, but where your life is going is not an accident either. I believe that an intelligent being made you and made you with a purpose. In fact, Psalm 139 said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an accident. And neither is the direction of your life right now. So that's anthology. Biology. We're going to run through this really quickly, okay? Um, Darwinian evolution in theory says that everything mutated from one single-celled organism... And, and from that one single-celled organism, we have everything that we have today. It all just kind of slowly, gradually mutated from simple life forms to much, much more complex life forms. Um, the interesting thing about that is that we don't have a whole lot of evidence between the simplest life forms and the most complex life forms that we have. In fact, there's a massive gap between the simplest ones and the more complex ones. Uh, even leading paleontologist, again, Stephen Jay Gould admits, this is an atheist, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. Shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips of the nodes of the branches. The rest is inference. So if you, if you talk about like a tip of a leaf having some evidence and then basing that tip of the leaf, uh, you know, based off of that, you say there is an entire tree full of millions of these leaves. It's a giant leap. And it takes an incredible amount of faith to believe that it all stemmed back from one little organism. 
Here's the crazy thing. When looking at the fossil record, we actually don't see small incremental changes for everything. We actually see very simple life forms for a long, 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 long period of time ago. But then there is one moment uh, that all scientists would agree called the Cambrian explosion where all of a sudden complex life forms hit the world. All of a sudden. I mean, wherever you are on how old the world is or how, old, or how young the world is, scientists say that somewhere between 500 and 600 million years ago, there was suddenly an array of complex life forms. How does that happen? Unless an intelligent being said, let there be complex animals. Again, that gap in the chain there is, it is a massive inference that actually takes more faith to believe than if an intelligent being had started the whole process to begin with. There is so much to say about all of this, but the worldview of Darwinian evolution actually contradicts itself at one point anyway. This is the argument. This is how it goes. Ready? We were formed out of smaller, more primitive ancestors that somehow were stronger than everyone else, and they dominated the weak, and that's kind of how we got here, survival of the fittest. It's not just, it's not that we're more intelligent, it's just that we... We beat up the weak ones. And so if everything that we have, your brain power, your emotions, everything is just so that you can survive, then it actually negates some of the things that you and I hold most dear. To say that everything about our life is just so that we can survive, that's how the the accidental forces in this world play out, actually says that love is not real. It's not real, not as you and I think it is. It's just a chemical inside of you that helps you keep going. Your friendship with someone else that says they're intrinsically valuable in and of themselves, that's actually not true. You just use them to help you survive. But we don't live that way, do we? There's something deep down inside that rebels against that and says, no, that's not true. In fact, uh, if all we did was base our entire worldview based on the the Darwinian evolution, uh, we would come to the same kind of mind-blowing conclusion that Darwin himself came to at one point where he said this. He says, but then in me, this is wacky, you ready? This is what Darwin said. But then in me is this horrid doubt that always arises whether the convictions of my mind, which has been developed from the mind of a lower animal, are of any value or at all trustworthy. How would I know that? Why would one trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in a monkey's mind? (laughs) Why would you trust what I'm saying to you right now if all we were were a product of survival of the fittest? As one uh, pastor put it, if we cannot trust our belief-forming faculties to tell us the truth, then why would we trust them to tell us the truth about anything, including evolution? Here's the point. We don't just survive. We live life to thrive. You don't have kids just so you can survive. (laughs) Believe me, survival is not easier after you have kids, okay? You don't love your kids just so that you could survive or help them thrive. You do it because you believe that love is real. You don't get married because they just make your life better. And when you do, your marriage falls apart. When you actually believe in unconditional love, that's when life starts thriving. There's something deep down in the makeup of who we are as human beings that says, no, that's not true. 